The Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and this is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now let's turn to John chapter 1. Isaiah, uh, in that prophecy, tells us of a child who will be born, who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How is that possible? Well, we hear the answer in John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then also read verse 14. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 14. And this will be our sermon, our sermon passage for this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Last Sunday... We began a series of messages for the Advent season in which we are considering the birth of Christ from the perspective of the truth that God is triune, that God is a trinity. And just by way of review, the trinity is the teaching that God is one, that there is a unity in the being of God. God is one, but nevertheless, within that unity of his being, there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And all three persons of the Godhead uh, worked together in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Last week we saw that the baby Jesus was a gift given to the world uh, from the Father, a gift of his love uh, to us. Uh, We'll consider next week how the baby Jesus was conceived by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And this morning, our concern is uh, 
that Jesus, the baby Jesus, is the incarnation of God the Son. So that's our, uh, our concern this morning. That's what we will consider. And this truth that, that Jesus is the incarnation of God, the second person of the Trinity, this is uh, the clear message that John uh, declares to us in the very first verses of his gospel that we read. Uh, we read uh, six verses from what is uh, called the prologue uh, to John's gospel. And if you read a lot of books, you know that uh, in many books, the author will begin with a prologue. It's uh, usually a few pages in which the author wants you to know something about the book or why he wrote it. Uh, before you get into the book, he wants you to know this information. Uh, first of all, he wants you to uh, be aware of this before he goes on uh, to write the book. Well, John has a prologue to his gospel, and he tells us in this prologue what is the first thing we need to know about Jesus. Before John uh, tells us about the life and the ministry of Jesus, before he goes on to tell us about uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, he tells us in this prologue what we need to know most of all, what is of first importance concerning Jesus Christ. And that is this, that the man Jesus Christ is none other than God in the flesh. That is who he is. And so he writes in his very first his opening words, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then he goes on in verse 14 to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, the word uh, is Jesus. And so before we learn anything else about Jesus, this is what John wants, to, wants us to know. First of all, he is not writing a gospel about some merely extraordinary historical figure or about someone who's merely a prophet, but he is writing a gospel. Uh, he is writing the story of the one who is Nothing less than God himself who has come in the flesh, who has come as a human being. Now, this truth of the incarnation is so familiar to us, particularly this time of year when we, we hear of it um, because we're celebrating the incarnation. But this truth becomes so familiar to us that so often we don't really appreciate uh, the greatness of it, the magnitude of what this means. But when you stop to consider uh, the Incarnation, it is a truth that truly staggers the mind. And the more you consider it, the more it overwhelms uh, the human capacity uh, or imagination to consider how this can be true. That Almighty God, the God whom our confession says is a most pure spirit, a God who is from everlasting to everlasting, the God who is um, present everywhere, who is uh, infinite in power, who is uh, almighty, that this God, he became a human being, that he united himself with his creation in Jesus Christ. And he took upon himself while remaining God. He took upon himself all the creaturely limitations that that uh, that we have as creatures. The sovereign creator, the Lord of all things, uh, the one who created and establish the mountains and the seas, the one who rules over the, the galaxies, the planets, and over the, the, the motions of the tiniest particles of matter. This God, he became man. 
He was conceived as a baby in the womb of his mother. He was born of her, just as each one of us were born of our mothers. And the more that we contemplate this, the more it fills our minds and our hearts with awe and wonder that God should become man. At the same time, when we consider the Incarnation and what it means for us, our hearts should not only be filled with wonder and awe and amazement, but our hearts ought to be filled with gratitude, with joy, with praise, because it was for us, it was for our salvation that God became man. And that's what we'll consider this morning, that why his birth is for us such good news, why the incarnation of the Son of God is gospel, it is good news for us. And the first thing that we'll consider this morning is that because Jesus is the incarnation of God, he is the supreme revelation of God. Uh, let's start by asking the question, what do we mean by revelation? Uh, revelation means that something is revealed um, or something is uncovered or disclosed that previously uh, was hidden. Uh, for you children who are here this morning, I'm sure that you are looking forward to Christmas morning uh, in case you have lost track of the days. It's seven days from now. Um, and you're not the only ones looking forward to Christmas. I, I am too. And other adults are as well. But on Christmas morning, you will experience a kind of revelation. Uh, the presents that you receive, uh, they will come wrapped up in wrapping paper and they are covered. You don't know what's inside until you tear away the wrapping paper and you uncover what's uh, under the paper. You reveal or what is there, what the presence will be revealed to you. And so uh, that will be a revelation. And I trust that uh, it will be a happy revelation uh, for all of you on Christmas morning. And when it comes to God, if we are to know him, he must reveal himself to us. Uh, there's a sense in which God is naturally hidden from us. And that's not because he's wrapped in wrapping paper, but because he is spiritual. He is invisible. Although God is present everywhere, we cannot see him with our eyes. But thankfully, God has not left us in ignorance about himself, but he has disclosed or he has revealed himself to us in different ways. First of all, God has revealed himself to us in the things that he has made. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaimed his handiwork. And so the creation, all that we see around us, everything that God has made declares continually moment after moment, day after day, that there is a God, that he is wise, that he is powerful, that he is good. God also reveals himself to us more fully in the scriptures. He has revealed himself to us in words, by his word. And so we have in the scriptures a fuller disclosing of the character of God, the works of God, what he has done for us. And so God has given us these two great books, uh, the book of creation in the book of the scriptures. But by far, the greatest revelation that God has given of himself is in Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
So God revealed himself to his people through the prophets. But Hebrews goes on to say, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So God revealed himself by his prophets in the days of old, but now in the last days. And what's implied here is now there is a greater revelation, and that is in the son of God, the son of God who came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And in our passage in John, John also tells us about this supreme revelation of God in Christ. He uses language that that would have brought to mind to his original readers uh, what God did for his people Israel that we read about in the scriptures uh, back in the days of the Exodus. In verse 14, when John says that the word who became flesh dwelt among us, He uses a Greek word that literally means to set up a tabernacle or to set up a tent. A tent is a tabernacle. And so the word dwelt among us means he pitched his tent or we could say he tabernacled among us. And the reference is uh, to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which God commanded Moses uh, to build for the people of Israel. And when that tabernacle was completed in that innermost sanctum of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark was the mercy seat. And God promised that he would dwell among his people. He would dwell in the midst of his people above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, in the midst of the camp of the people. And so God Almighty dwelt among his people. He tabernacled among them. And just in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ is God now in the midst of his people. He dwells among his people. He tabernacles among us. But rather than God being in the midst of his people in the form of a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke as it was in the days of the tabernacle, now God has come to us in Jesus Christ as a fellow human being, one of us as a man. And therefore, as a man, God can reveal the truth about his character, about his person with far more power and clarity than he could in these other ways of revelation. Also, when John says in verse 14, we have seen his glory, he's referring to the experience that Moses had in the wilderness when he puts uh, this request to the Lord. Moses said, please show me your glory. Uh, Moses longed to see the glory of God. And the Lord's answer to Moses was essentially, yes, I will show you my glory, but only a part. You cannot see the fullness of my glory. And so he says to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verses 21 through 23, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so what John says here in his a gospel that we have seen his glory when he says we have seen his glory what he is saying is is that whereas Moses whereas he saw a part of the glory of God when the Lord passed by him in the cleft of the rock those who have seen Jesus have seen a much greater revelation of the fullness of the glory of God they have seen something even greater than what Moses saw when the Lord revealed his glory to him. 
Now, ever since Adam and Eve committed that first sin, no man has been able to stand, no person has been able to behold the glory of God, his unmediated glory. He would be destroyed by the holiness of the Lord. Sinful man cannot come into the presence of God. That is part of what sin has done to us. We cannot come before God without a mediator, without uh, someone to come between us, because we would be destroyed by the searing holiness of God. And this is why the Lord told Moses that he would only see his back. He would not see his face. Exodus thirty-three twenty: you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And this is the same truth that John uh, tells us in verse 18 of John chapter 1. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. No one could ever see God in the fullness of his glory without being destroyed. But then he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so in other words, what John is saying is, there is a true sense in which to behold Jesus, to see Jesus with eyes of faith, was to behold the fullness of the glory of God that had always been withheld from people because of God's holiness, because of his glory is, is fatal to us if we were to behold it in all its fullness. When Moses saw the glory of God, it must have filled him with wonder and awe. In Exodus 34, we read that Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And yet there's a true sense in which whoever saw Jesus, and even now by faith as we see Jesus, we behold the glory of God in a far greater, far fuller way than even what Moses saw. Because we see in the person of Jesus Christ the glory of the image of the invisible God who has come to us in human form. Now, to be sure, that glory is still hidden in the humanity of Jesus, but nevertheless, it is a revelation of God's glory that is far greater, far fuller than even what the Israelites saw when God revealed himself to them, or what Moses saw when God revealed himself to them. And so if someone were to ask you as a Christian, if someone were to say to you, you are a Christian, uh, tell me what is God like, or what is your God like? Well, one way you could answer that question would be to, uh, you could point to the skies above. And you could say, look at the stars, look at the sun and the moon. It is my God who created all these things. It is the, the God that I worship is the sovereign Lord and the, the maker of all that exists. He is infinite in power and glory and wisdom and goodness. Or you could open the scriptures to that person. You could show them the ways in which God manifested his glory to his people throughout the ages. You could take him to the burning bush where Moses had to take his sandals off his feet because he was standing on holy ground. You could take them to uh, the passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where the Lord reveals his majesty, his glory, his holiness to Isaiah in such a powerful way that Isaiah is nearly undone by what he saw. And all of that would be true. You could say, my God is a God who is fearfully glorious. His glory is a holy glory, a glory of divine majesty. And all of that would be wonderfully true. But a better answer would be to that question, what is God like? What is your God like, Christian? A better answer would be 
to point to Jesus and say, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. Because Jesus is God. God the Son who has come in the flesh. And he has revealed to us the character of God, the heart of God, in a fuller, more complete way than even these wonderful demonstrations of God's glory of the past did not fully reveal. And what does Jesus show us about God? He shows us that he is a merciful God. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is full of steadfast love. He shows us that out of his love for sinners, that God humbled himself and became man in order to deliver us from sin and death forever. Jesus shows us how God, how he is concerned for those who suffer, how he healed the sick. He freed the demon oppressed. He welcomed little children to himself. He was patient and kind and gentle in his dealing with sinners, those who did not deserve that kindness. Yet Jesus and God as the man Jesus showed that kindness and compassion to sinners. Jesus was filled with compassion for those who grieved. He even shed tears at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. And most of all, Jesus, as God, as God who has come in Christ, he loved me. He loved me by bearing my sins, by taking away my guilt forever by his death on the cross. And in this way, you can point to Jesus and say, this is my God. This is my God, a God of infinite glory, yes, a God of all-consuming holiness, yes, but a God who is compassionate and merciful and kind and humble, who came in order not to condemn the world, but to save the world from sin. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace, full of grace and truth. But what do you see when you see Jesus? I don't know. Perhaps you only see something incomplete. You know that Jesus has made much of. Perhaps you see an extraordinary historical figure, an extraordinary religious figure, a prophet. By the grace of God, do you see something more there? When you look at Jesus as he is revealed in the scriptures, do you see something more there? Do you see the face of the Father as you look upon the face of Jesus? Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because if you see him with eyes of faith, you have seen the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father, and to see the Father is to have eternal life. So Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Second, because Jesus is the incarnation of God, he is a perfect savior. This is our second point. He is a perfect savior. I said earlier that the most staggering truth that is revealed in Scripture is really the incarnation of, of God in the person of Christ. This, is, this has been called the miracle of miracles. If the incarnation is true, then every other miracle that we read about in the Scriptures uh, is, it must be true. And of course, the scriptures do not lie because God cannot lie, cannot lie. So we know that the incarnation is true. So everything that the scripture tells us is true about God. And this idea 
uh, if we can consider it as just an idea for a moment, but this idea of the incarnation, that God became man. This, is, this has been an idea that has been so captivating to some people, just the beauty of it, the wonder of it, that some theologians have speculated that even if we were not sinners, even if it were not for our salvation, the incarnation had to happen because it's just such a wonderful thing that God would become man. But this is speculation. It's not very useful because the truth is we are sinners. We are sinners. And the truth is, according to the scriptures, the incarnation of the Son of God has everything to do with the need that we have of redemption. This is why God became man. He became man for our salvation. 1 Timothy 1.15, this was our assurance of pardon. Uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. This is why Christ came into the world, in order to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. This is why God became man. This is why the baby Jesus was born. Because this was the only way that we could be saved. There was no other way that God could save us. Some, you know, it's, not, it's usually not good to say what God can't do. Or this is the only thing that God could do. But the truth is that because of our sin, if we were to be forgiven, if we are to be saved, there was no other way for this to happen than for God to come to us in himself or to come to us as man, as Christ, to save us from our sins. That was the only way that we could be redeemed. We need a Savior who is truly man so that he might represent us before God and be one of us. We need a Savior who is true man in order to render to God that perfect obedience to his will that we have failed to render because of our sin. We need a Savior who is true man in order to represent us before God to offer himself a sacrifice to atone for our sins as a substitute for us in our place. We need a Savior who is truly, truly human. And if Christ was not true man, he could not be our Savior. But John assures us in this passage that he is true man, and the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But if Jesus was only flesh, if he was only man, he could not be our Savior. He had to be true God. If Jesus had not been conceived by the Spirit, if he had not been truly and is not truly the Son of God, he could not be our Savior. If he was born of Joseph by natural means, he would be a sinner just like we are. If Jesus had not been God, he would have been utterly overcome and destroyed by the wrath of God that he endured on the cross. If Jesus had not been God, his sacrifice on the cross would not have been of sufficient worth and merit to atone for the sins of the world. If Jesus had not been God, he could not have brought everlasting defeat to Satan and evil, and he could not have brought us everlasting victory by his death and resurrection from the dead. If Jesus had not been God, what John says in verse 4 would not be true. He says, in him was life. In him was life. That is the life of God. If Jesus was not God, he could not give us life. But praise God, Jesus is both. He is man and God, and therefore he is our perfect Savior. And thirdly, because Jesus is the incarnation of the Son of God, 
He is the way, he is the only way for us to receive the love of the Father. Uh, last week, if you uh, heard uh, the message, the sermon uh, on live stream, you remember that uh, in the sermon, uh, I posed a question, a question that some would say borders on perhaps dangerous speculation. And that question is, uh, what was God doing before he created heaven and earth? Only God knows the full answer to that question. But at least we can say this, that before God created heaven and earth, he was loving his son. Because from all eternity, even before God was Lord, even before God was the creator, he was father. He was father to his son, Jesus. And so from all eternity, the father loved his son. And we can add to that this morning that Before God made heaven and earth, God the Son was delighting in the love of his Father. They enjoyed this perfect communion from all eternity. Just as the Father loved his Son, the Son in return loved his Father. And so from all eternity, the Father and the Son delighted in that perfect fellowship that they had with one another. And that is not speculation, but this is what the scriptures tell us. In Proverbs chapter 8, we hear the voice of Christ speaking as the voice of wisdom and he speaks of the joy that he had with his father at the time of creation in proverbs eight thirty, it says i was beside him like a master workman and i was daily his delight rejoicing before him always again here is a truth that staggers the mind we can begin to conceive of it that before the creation before there was anything but god God was in his inter-Trinitarian fellowship and communion, delighting, all three persons delighting and rejoicing in one another and the love that they have for one another. The father loving his son, the son delighting in his father. Matthew Henry says this about this truth. He says, there was a glory and happiness which Christ had with God before the world was. The son infinitely happy in the enjoyment of his father's bosom and no less the Father's delight, the Son of His love. And the salvation that Christ came into the world to give us is nothing other than to make us children of God so that we also might know this infinite happiness of enjoyment uh, in the bosom of the Father. That we too might be brought into the loving embrace of God the Father that we too, through Jesus Christ, might receive and know and, 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 and have that love of the Father, that very same love with which God has loved his Son uh, from before the creation of the world. This is what God has done for us in Christ. He has brought us into that communion so that as true sons and daughters of God, we are the object of the affection, the love, even the delight of God the Father, just as he has always eternally known and loved and delighted in his son Jesus. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, to believe in his, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so by faith in Jesus Christ, this is the gift that you have been given, that through him you receive the love of the Father and will always be the object of his love forever and ever. 
And so the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of the Son of God, this is something worthy to celebrate. This is something to rejoice in, to give thanks to God for. Because Jesus, he is the supreme revelation of God. If it were not for Christ, we would not know God in a saving way. He is the perfect Savior. And Jesus is the way for you and me to receive the love of the Father. Let's pray.